I mean, I don't know how the internet works at all, really, but that seems feasible. I don't know why it's not already an invention. I mean, what was it, Jeb Bush? No, not Jeb Bush. One of the Bushes. Bush. There's been so many Bushes that have been, like, in politics. I mean, sorry. I'm excited. Uh, I am drinking Shorts Brew. Soft Parade. I uh, I think it's some local craft brew. I've never seen it before. I don't recognize the brand. I got it at Kroger. They they have this thing where you can get like a six pack of mix and match, and I think they're maybe mixing and matching. They're like lesser known known beers. What kind of beer is it? It is a fruit ale brewed with blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, and blackberries. So, Whoa. a lot of berries today. So when you grab these these drinks, do you like look them up before you grab them? No, I just grab them. I like labels. I'm like a sucker for being advertised to. So this one's in a pink can. And it's just a girl sitting in a beach chair. So I'm like, oh, I'll drink to that. Or I'll oh, drink that, cool. rather. And, nice, uh, but you don't go into like Beer Advocate or anything? No, I'm not very good with a computer. The internet actually kind of scares me. Um, so I tend to... What, to was the, what was the name of the beer called again? It is the beer. So the I think the brand or the brewery is it's called Shorts Brew, like S-H-O-R-T. And then the actual beer is Soft Parade. Mm. Sounds kind of calming, you know? All right. According to Beer Advocate, this is a fantastic brew at 83%, giving it a score of good. 83%? A B minus? This is is a Christian, family-friendly show. 83% a B minus? What are you uh, sipping on today? I have St. Archer's brewery the mosaic ipa can i get a drum roll for its beer advocate score sounds fancy i don't know how well that's coming through it's just been tapping on my chair fantastic great it is and i'll be honest i looked it up before buying it because you're cheating right yeah yeah i'm the the guy that's in the the aisle like on my phone looking at every brewery and just like typing its name in so uh this is the saint archer mosaic ipa saint archer brewery is actually a brewery here local in san diego oh cool that's kind of cool um, and it's actually a double IPA, something I didn't know until after doing some research. But basically, this is the description. Some have described it as a citra on steroids, but it's more than that. Rich in mango, lemon, citrus, earthy pine, tropical fruit, herbal, and stone fruit notes. With mosaic hops and a compelling trio of Amarillo, Cincoe, and Chintuk. This mosaic double IPA is sure to be a winner in any enthusiast book. Hmm. And with a beer advocate score of 95, i.e., world class i have high expectations so so where is that on the leaderboard compared to my so that's my number 900 913 oh wow triple digits that's pretty good yeah so we'll see and in the ipa world i guess they have like sub sub rankings uh-huh. it's number 19 excuse me in the ipa world its ranking is 99 so oh, we'll see nice yep all right anything else before we get started now let's get into it all right let's do it So, uh, alrighty, well, let's get into it then. Um, so, you know, in the spirit of drinking, I guess, what if a, uh, a patient comes into you and they said, you know, they had kind of a late night out and they uh, threw up a little bit this morning and there was some, some specks of blood. What are you thinking about? Uh, I think they have maybe a Mallory Weiss tear. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And um, what's the more concerning version of that that you 
you always want to worry about when somebody has that presentation. Uh, Mallory Weiss is more superficial, and then if you're worried about like an actual rupture, I think that's uh, named after the famous uh, Dr. Borja, Borja syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. And then you'll start like you know hearing crepitus within the skin and the mediastinal crepitus and things like that, or air in the mediastinum rather. Yeah, you can you can actually see air on X-ray if you happen to get one, and those patients will tend to be a lot sicker just because they have you know stomach and esophagus contents kind of flowing into their mediastinum, which probably not very fun. That's scary stuff. I wonder how common that is. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it's particularly common. I mean, there's certain certain high-risk groups, like people with, well, obviously chronic alcoholics who, you know, people with like erosive esophagitis, and then I think certain um, connective tissue diseases might predispose a little bit more. But in terms of the general population, even like in the kind of binge drinking population, I don't think it happens that often. Yep. All right. Well, along the same lines, if someone comes in with kind of esophageal dysphagia, you've already diagnosed that there is some esophageal dysphagia. What is the classic next best exam to get if um, the patient needs to be examined for this dysphagia? Uh, like a barium swallow? Perfect. Exactly. And let's say they get a barium swallow and the person's like, oh, we need another test. Anything else that the SEP2 exam might ask you for? Um, I would probably follow it up with an EGD. Or if you're Perfect. Like, really worried about... Um, well, I guess for dysphagia, yeah, you would just do an EGD. Yep, exactly. So that's kind of the, the teaching point from that is the step two loves to ask you about swallowing. And uh, barium swallow, I think, is typically the best first choice. It's easy to do. You know, it doesn't require an invasive procedure like a scope and anesthesia and all that good stuff, at least not too much of it. So barium swallow can kind of get a good outline of what's going on and then followed by endoscopy, especially if there's a mass, especially if you need some biopsies. Um, sometimes they'll talk about manometry, I guess, if you're worried about like a motility issue and you actually need to see kind of, uh, you're worried maybe about spasm or, you know, scleroderma or something mm -hmm. where you need to actually like see the muscles move. But, uh, I think barium swallow followed by endoscopy is often, often a safe answer. Yeah. I think I, manometry is technically the gold standard for a lot of these like motility disorders, but I don't think it's done particularly often in actual clinical practice either. No, not at all. Um, just to go back, actually, that the mention of barium reminded me, um, so is, is a barium swallow safe to do in somebody that you suspect Borhoff syndrome? Right. So the right answer will be, I think, a gastrogaffin. It's safer. It's less toxic, right? Yep. So I think gastrogaffin is like the trade name or whatever, which does show up on tests, but they'll also call it a a, a water-soluble enema sometimes. Or, yep. sorry, not water-soluble enema, water-soluble <laughs> <laughs> contrast. Um, and it's less irritating, so there's less risk of mediastinitis if they actually do have a, have a rupture. And let's say someone comes in chest pain and dysphagia. Uh, anything that comes to mind, they come in, they're like, you know, I got this horrible chest pain. It feels like I have a heart attack, but I also have trouble swallowing. Yeah, so that makes me think of um, like a corkscrew esophagus is like the buzzword associated with it. I think, what's the actual, yep, it, it's like esophageal motility disorder or something. Yeah, it's exactly right. Esophageal spasm. Right. And you treat this esophageal spasm with what? So it's kind of funny because it also will help relieve cardiac chest pain, but you can use nitrates actually or calcium channel blockers. Yeah, but nitroglycerin first line, kind of mm -hmm. fast acting, calm it down. And like you said, you'll diagnose it with the barium swallow. So always think barium swallow for these esophageal diseases. And um, in the barium swallow, you'll see that the esophagus kind of looks like a corkscrew. So that's really gets the same corkscrew shaped esophagus. Yeah, it's nice that it's one of those those diseases where it's like the clinical description of it is really, it's like kind of pathognomonic where you see it and you're like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's easy to remember. I'll drink to that. Cheers.
Um, now, what if you had a patient come mm. in who kind of had similar symptoms and they're like a young, otherwise healthy male. I don't know why that's usually in the vignette. Um, maybe they have a little history of asthma or something like that. Um, and they tend to have symptoms kind of episodically, like maybe certain foods will trigger it. Like, what are you thinking of? Uh, and they're having chest pain, maybe some GERD. Yeah, so GERD or, um, I was thinking more along like esophageal disorders though. Oh, esophageal disorders. And what are their symptoms? They're kind of having, you know, dysphagia, maybe, um, like sometimes they'll have pain or sometimes it'll feel like maybe food is caught in their throat, like certain foods though, not every food. Sure. And they have like a history Um, of asthma. mm. I'm thinking now like more of like a web or like a zanker diverticulum. What's the answer? So... Sorry, that, this might be my fault, and I might not have been kind of giving you enough hints, no, but I was thinking of eosinophilic esophagitis. Oh, that is a good one. So what's like, how do you how do you differentiate? How do you get that from like a question stem? Or how so, do you start petering that out? Yeah. It's it's kind of hard to, to narrow it down just from the question stem. Um, some of the things hints that I was trying to give you is like, it's for whatever reason, young, healthy males, um, and it's associated with like other history of, atopy so if like somebody has eczema somebody has asthma like really bad allergies um and if their symptoms tend to be associated only with like certain triggers or like certain foods will trigger it and i'm not talking about like oh it happens every time i don't chew a steak or whatever but like oh whenever i eat you know peanuts or something um Mm. i get this pain in my chest Um, that's when you kind of think about that uh do you happen to remember kind of the classic like egd findings um for esophagitis, for eosinophilic esophagitis. Eosinophilic. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm thinking about webs, but I don't know why. Uh, yeah. So we'll get to webs later. But um, so you actually, it's called like felinization, where you get these kind of like transverse, angry-looking bands, and they call it felinization because if you do the EGD, it actually looks similar to how a, a cat's esophagus does. Hmm. Um, so I've I've actually had like test questions before where the the vignettes kind of hazy and it's like hard to differentiate and then you'll actually they'll actually give you the picture and you can you can recognize it just from from how it looks compared to other types of esophagitis oh that's nice that's nice and high yield right there feel and night say it again felinization like like feline like a cat yeah i like that i'll drink to that cheers i'm really liking this so far the saint archer mosaic yeah mine's pretty good too I would definitely give it an 83, maybe even higher. Yeah, get this one next time. I think you'd like it. Double IPA. It's, typically, I'm not strong enough for double IPAs, but this one is very smooth. So along the same lines, I'm going to piggyback in off what you sure. were just talking about. Um, this one's kind of just like a classic thing that I actually saw in the ED a lot last month. Um, basically, if someone comes in and they have chest pain, and one of the symptoms associated with their chest pain, just kind of something that's been happening a lot, is that they have this like horrible cough at night. Any idea what they might be having? Um, so that sounds a lot like GERD to me. Exactly. So that's kind of like the classic. Um, people think they actually have asthma. And like my asthma gets really bad at night, and then you have to say, you know what, this isn't asthma. This is actually you having GERD, and now you're laying down, and your low, lower esophageal sphincters are nice and relaxed, and those food contents and kind of acid are coming up and causing kind of this weird coughing reflex and um so classic people coughing at night asthma at night start thinking about GERD yeah if I remember correctly some of 
the the treatment of like chronic cough like undifferentiated chronic cough in the adult um one of the potential avenues you go down is actually giving them an empiric uh ppi proton pump inhibitor yeah um, if the cough gets better then you just say oh yeah it was gerd kind of causing the cough in the first place yeah i think it's like a trifold thing right like cough that's like undifferentiated there's like managed gerd uh something about postnasal drip and then something else I yeah, I think the third one might actually be asthma. Because um, okay. nighttime cough is like a more predominant symptom um, in older individuals as like a new presentation of asthma. Hmm. Or GERD. Or GERD as well, yeah. So I think they kind of... That's tough. Yeah, I don't think they would really get into the weeds too much and make you really kind of no, dig down. No, there'll be something else. Yeah. yeah. So, um, say you have... A patient who has uh, HIV and their CD4 count is pretty low, and they're they're complaining of this kind of chest pain. You know, we keep talking about chest pain or pain in their you know upper esophagus area, and you notice that they have this kind of like these white plaques in their mouth. What are you thinking of? So you start thinking white plaques. You have to kind of break it down. Like, is this candida? Is this kind of a deeper esophagitis? Um, is this symptom of HIV, HSV, cytomegalovirus? Mm-hmm. Um, so with this patient, you're thinking more of an esophagitis in addition to, um, you said there's thrush in their mouth, or is it? I just know, said white. Know? I just said white flax, but yeah, yeah I'm, I you're right. The first thing you said, I was referring to candida. So they have a pretty bad candidal infection affecting both their mouth and esophagus. Mm-hmm. And something okay. to keep in mind is that um, this can actually this is considered like an AIDS-defining illness. So right. this, because normally you define it as the HIV AIDS continuum is like a CD4 count under, I believe, 200 just considered like full-on AIDS. Um, but if somebody's CD4 count is above 200 and they get a case of this candle esophagitis, that counts as well. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things where you can actually just treat it empirically where if the plaques, you know, wipe off and you do like a, a wet mount or whatever and you see, you know, pseudo-hyphae under the microscope on a KOH prep, um, you can just assume that the esophagitis aspect of it is from, from the candida as well and just treat empirically with I don't think you can use nystatinite because you normally with nystatin you do the swish and swallow. I think you actually have to use like a systemic, like a oral fluconazole or like itraconazole. Right. No, that makes sense. Unless you can really gargle pretty deeply with a nystatin swallow. Well, spit and swallow. Yeah. I don't. I don't know how you do both. I guess it's what spit, <laughs> swish and spit, whatever it is. Yeah. Now you um, swish and swallow. Don't do that. We are not medical professionals. Everything here is educational purposes only. Yeah. Uh, also, even if we were, we're off duty, so it doesn't count. Gotcha. <laughs> so um, you brought up a great point with the HIV. Anything else in that regards, like HSV, CMV? What else are we thinking about with these? Yeah. So I was you. I heard you. You mentioned HSV and um, CMV, and that's you know very astute of you as well. So in, in those cases, you you wouldn't have any mouth findings. It would just be kind of this you know dysphagia picture, um, painful swallowing type of thing. And in that case, you actually do want to do an EGD. Do you, by chance, happen to remember like what the kind of classic buzzwords are associated with CMV versus HSV esophagitis? For some reason, I want to say that HSV are more kind of like punctate, smaller, deeper lesions versus CMV, which are uh, larger, more superficial lesions. But correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no. So you, you pretty much hit the mark there. Uh, HSV is described as more of like a like volcano-like eruption, so kind of like punctate spots. Whereas CMV is more like a linear type pattern where you'll see kind of like streaks right. of, of uh, angry esophagus. Nice. I do remember that. It's all coming back to me. Mm-hmm. 
Did, have, did you see any question stems where they actually ask you about like the morphology under microscope, at least for step two? Yeah, I, I had a few questions. I also had kind of a, they, they really tried to do me dirty um, and they gave me a question about where they took a culture of it and it was like, they did a, a Zank smear and it was Zank smear positive, okay. which is associated with HSV um, and BZV. I don't think it's associated with CMV, so... At least okay. that was when I was answering the question. That's what I based my assumption off of because it didn't describe how the the ulceration looked. But there are questions where they will do that. Right. Okay. And uh, just to back up a little bit, and we're, you kind of had mentioned, um, you know, if somebody has white plaques in their mouth. You know, they they scrape away with um, thrush. What what would you think about if they weren't scraping away? I start thinking about like oral leukoplakia. So like um, cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's something uh, like uh, that happens just on the side of your tongue too. Do you remember that? Yeah, so that's that's called oral hairy leukoplakia, and that's actually associated yeah. with EBV infection. Yeah. And so that's kind of like that will kind of go away on its own once the EBV is done. Yeah, it self-resolves. I think it, when you see that, you're obligated to take a biopsy, but um, it's not as concerning as like you know, regular leukoplakia is where you're, where right. you're more concerned with cancer. Right. So going back to the esophagus real quick, mm -hmm. if you have impaired relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, that's called what? So that is achalasia. Perfect. Often due to degeneration of inhibitory neurons. Yeah. Um, Do you happen to remember the names of those plexuses? Plexi? Oh yeah, the myenteric plexus. Mm -hmm. And I'm cheating because I'm looking at it right now on my screen. Wow, bro. But, uh, also named after Professor Arbark. Uh, what are, what are some treatment options for the uh, achalasia? So you got a few options, actually. You can do a um, pneumatic dilation where they, it's an EGD procedure where they stick a balloon down in there and, and uh, inflate it to kind of try and crack open that lower esophageal sphincter. Ooh, so painful. Yeah, it's a little bit dangerous, too, because it kind of puts you at risk for uh, Bowerhaven syndrome, actually, where if they, they crack it too hard, then it'll rupture, and then you have other problems to deal with. Um, the other options for people that aren't as good a candidates for that is you can do Botox uh, to kind of relax the muscle, but then you have to get that redone because it kind of wears off. And then another option, I believe, is what's called the Heller myotomy, where they actually take a chunk of the, the sphincter out and it forces it to relax, basically, or keeps it from contracting. Yep. Yep. And you mentioned nitrates as well, like nitrates or calcium channel blockers, kind of uh, first-line medical therapy before you get too intense. I didn't actually. That's that's a good point. I just went straight down the like interventional options. But Start yeah, sniffing calcium. and snapping. Yeah, tearing, tearing muscles and taking names. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you should be a GI doc. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I have. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Have you have you heard? Uh, not to get political or anything, but there's there's a uh, they're starting like NPs and PAs are starting to push for the ability to do. Um, EGDs and colonoscopies. I believe it. You have a... Yeah, without getting too political, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll drink to that. I think I think they're pushing for everything. I, I will definitely drink to that. We'll have a separate, uh, separate podcast about that at some point. Yeah. All right. Something that was mentioned before, but I just want to make sure people remember this, is if you have someone that coming in saying they're not really choking but they do feel like food is getting stuck and you get a barium swallow and it shows kind of an outpouching of the esophagus what do you start thinking about 
So that would be a Zankers classically. Um, basically what happens is you kind of have, it's a, uh, like your swallowing muscles are out of sync with each other and it creates kind of areas of high pressure that can yep. lead to a diverticulum. I don't think it's, is it a true, di- I forget which ones are true versus pseudodiverticular. I think it's, it's a pseudodiverticular there because it's not it all is. three layers, right? Because the muscle, it's like going through the muscle, right? It's not yeah. going, the muscle itself isn't being pushed out. Like the, It's going like through weak area, the cricophrenial muscle, I think. Or right mm-hmm. under the yeah, no, that's correct. Um, so, no, I think it is pseudo, pseudodiverticulum, but yeah. uh, like most things, don't quote us. Or do, but if you're wrong, it's your fault, not us. <laughs> All right, if someone has cancer of the esophagus, mm-hmm. and let's say you take a biopsy and it's squamous, anything that you basically automatically assume that this patient has done in the past, like what are the most common causes of squamous cell cancer of the esophagus? Oh, wow. That's not something I've thought about for a while. Um, so squamous cell cancer, you can kind of remember it as normally you have, it's what, like columnar epithelium? And so um, any kind of irritants to that columnar epithelium will cause metaplasia, leading to dysplasia, as your body tries to um, adapt to that insult. So like things like smoking, um, alcohol. I think one of the weird ones to remember is like really hot teas can cause it. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the big ones that I think about. Yep, exactly. And this is the most common cancer worldwide if they try to throw you an epidemiologic Right, yeah, question. yeah. So worldwide, it's squamous, and then in the U.S., it's uh, adeno, right? Yep. Perfect. Yep. U.S. and Europe and Australia, you've got adenocarcinoma, secondary to reflux and GERD, and all right. these things that are associated with obesity and this new lifestyle that everyone has kind of adopted. So squamous versus adeno, good things to know. And these ones are kind of, anytime you have cancer, you think about progressive dysphagia, and that makes sense, just theoretically, the cancer is growing, sometimes... Uh, you know, liquids are okay, but then food starts getting stuck, and then liquids all of a sudden start getting stuck, and the person's having a little bit of weight loss, and maybe there's some bleeding every now and then, and some coughing, and uh, maybe even some kind of trouble speaking, and then uh, you're looking for these red flags of esophageal cancer. And the interesting that I that kind of uh, that I remembered after reviewing this content is that the reason esophageal cancer is such a poor prognosis is because there's no cirrhosis in the esophagus. You remember that? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it spreads quite easily as opposed to being kind of right. contained, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that brings up a good point, kind of to go back to achalasia. So what's something that you are obligated to do if somebody presents with achalasia to rule out cancer? Cancer. Well, my understanding is achalasia, you probably start with the bearing swallow anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll look at that bird beak kind of anatomy. Right. right. And... Or is that the answer, or are you talking about maybe going in there with like a, a scope and, and looking around and maybe biopsying the area? Yeah, exactly. So you, you're you obligated. So you can, it's, I guess I'm getting at the difference between achalasia versus pseudoachalasia. And um, so if you have an esophageal cancer, kind of that lower esophageal sphincter, and it's kind of, you know, doing like its napping thing, thing or whatever, and uh, impinging on that lower esophageal sphincter, it can actually look quite similar to just normal achalasia on a barium swallow. So you have to take... You have to do an EGG and take biopsies to, to confirm that it's just, you know, your run-of-the-mill achalasia. Yep, makes sense. Moving on to the stomach for a little bit. Um, what is the most common cause of gastritis? Most common cause of gastritis? I would assume... Also, 
the most common cause of peptic ulcer. Yeah, I was going to say, I would assume it's H. pylori. Perfect. And the second most common cause is actually NSAIDs. But right. for gastritis, H. pylori is something you always want to think about. Interestingly, 10% of gastritis is due to autoantibodies. And this is gastritis, like type B gastritis. And this is the type that causes that pernicious anemia. So wait, 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 wait. Is that? I thought, so type A gastritis, I always remembered it as A for autoimmune. And then oh, type B, B for up. bacteria. So type A is autoimmune, and then type B is from H. pylori. Okay, perfect. I might have mixed them up in my notes. Type A, yes, type A autoantibodies to parietal cells causing pernicious anemia. Perfect. And type B, which is 90% of gastritis, is caused by NSAIDs and H. pylori infections. Nice. So uh, how, do you, how do you diagnose H. pylori? What are your options? I got some options. Um, <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> Cheers. He says, as he cries. <laughs> it's one of those annoying, like, diagnostic algorithms that they uh, definitely want you to know, though. Uh, it's uh, for H. pylori. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I don't know about any algorithms. I was just gonna say, um, you can do like a ure- urease uh, breath test. You mm-hmm. could do. Fecal stool antigen. You could, in theory, do antibodies if you think it's their first bout. Um, yeah. If they haven't been treated before, because right. antibodies stay positive for quite some time. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I would either go stool or uh, urease breath test. And then I think urease breath test doesn't work if they're on specific medications, right? Like PPIs or something. Yeah. No. Exactly. So you um, you're supposed to stop your PPIs. I think there's a few other medications, but PPIs are kind of a classic association. Um, you're not supposed to take PPIs for a couple weeks because the the urease breath test actually depends on measuring the amount of hydrogen produced um, in, like, formation of urea, which is what H. pylori uses to kind of, you know, survive in that acidic environment. Um, and then you can do the fecal stool test as well. And then, like you said, antibodies, I think, stay positive. They might actually stay positive indefinitely. Yeah, I think so they're one of those that you don't check. Yeah, well, so you can, what you could do is you check it the first time, and then if it's positive, you just treat empirically but then you don't retest like you like you had said right like if they came back and said oh like you know in a year or two and you think maybe it's h pylori like checking the antibodies won't help right because they've already had h pylori right. so they'll be positive exactly and so you you mentioned all the minimally invasive um ways to do it if if all those are negative and you're like still really concerned about it you might actually end up just getting an egd and you can take um tissue samples and just do it directly or there's there's like a modified version of the urease urease test that um they'll do on tissue samples to try and see if there's there's h pylori in it nice that's a lot of high yield stuff right there h pylori always shows up yeah it's definitely a a fan favorite um do you remember how to treat it by any chance (sighs) was that a cheers i'll drink to that or was that a Mm. uh, oh there's more i'm really liking this i'm really liking this drink this Mm. is this is a uh buzzwords favorite you said what? It's, okay. It's Saint Angel, and it was mosaic. Saint Archer mosaic. Saint Archer mosaic. Saint Archer mosaic. Yeah. Huh. yeah, brewed in San Diego. San Diego. I've heard that means a, a whale. I can't. I can't. I was like, you can't say it on a podcast, but uh, it was just said. Um, yes, to treat H. pylori. You got to do that big, big combo, the big one, two, three. Uh, I think it's often amoxicillin. A macrolide, typically clarithromycin, mm-hmm. and a meprazole, um, if my sketchy memories uh, 
them to fail me. And then if yeah. those don't work, there is a quadruple therapy. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to be wrong because I don't remember everything. But uh, do we add metronidazole and change clarithromycin to augmentin? Or am I doing too much? So I think the clarithromycin stays the same. You do the PPI. You add bismuth. Right, um, bismuth, yes. And then I think you do a tetracycline, actually. You do. Yep. So bismuth, it's, it's what? Bismuth, tetracycline. Yeah, metronidazole is definitely part of it. Tetracycline and omeprazole. Right. So you actually take out the clarithromycin. Yeah, and you sub- you substitute that for the tetracycline. And the amoxicillin. Yeah. Wow, so you're changing. And bismuth is interesting. Like, it's an interesting choice. Yeah, I I think it has something to do. Like, it, it acts as a... Uh, a barrier at the ulcer base that actually allows it to heal okay and i had a patient recently who had just like this diarrhea that we didn't really understand the etiology and gi was on board and, and i was talking to the fellow and i said what else can we do for this lady and, and he's like you can start giving her bismuth and like in my head i'm like why are we giving this lady bismuth like yes it might help with diarrhea but um upon some further research bismuth actually has some antimicrobial properties as well so they actually think like for these like microcolitis kind of phenomena you can actually like actually treat some pathogen or, or take care of some pathogen with the bismuth as well huh yeah now you know a little that's, a little out of the scope of this podcast but that's pretty cool interesting nonetheless i'll yeah. drink to that oh i'll drink to that and um along the lines of medications uh kind of having a a dual action in the GI system. What is uh, what's something that people like to use to treat uh, diabetic gastroparesis? Uh, Reglan. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to close for mine. <laughs> <laughs> also a good option. I meant uh, kind of along like an antibiotic. Oh, line. I get what you're saying. Yeah. A macrolide. Yeah. So sure. <laughs> there you go. So sorry, that was my fault. I. Forgot how I didn't realize I just how big did it for someone recently. So I was like, yeah. "Oh, I know this." You're like, "Oh, I'm on it. I got it. Give him regular." <laughs> um, yeah. So erythromycin actually can be used. It's not really used for its antibiotic properties that much anymore, but it is used as a promotility agent. Yep. Uh, especially in diabetic gastroparesis, um, which also kind of relates to why it's not given in babies because there's some theoretical risk of uh, increasing pyloric stenosis. Actually. Yep. I do remember that. In those firstborn males, which is also kind of the classic population for whatever reason. We gotta have some embryo, uh, or not some embryo, some pediatric uh, episodes for sure. Yeah, dread it, run from it. Dread it. Pediatric still arrives. Hundred percent. It's it's tough, tough stuff too. It's totally like a different different ballpark. Yeah, I don't know. I always just say you know like kids are just tiny adults, but uh, all my APs attending got really mad at me when I said that. So I, I really don't know what that's about. Yeah, I think they're just uh, a little salty. Yeah. Much like Still the CF it. kids, they're also little and salty. Damn. Damn, no no breaks today. It's <laughs> a hot yield association right there. <laughs> I'm drinking that. Cheers. Tell me what you're what you're feeling with this with this drink that you're this fruity shandy that you have. You know, when I first started drinking it, I thought it was pretty good. It's it's been Uh-oh. pretty hot and muggy here, so like having kind of a nice cold, kind of fruity, fruity ale is pretty refreshing. But the more that I drink it, the more that I realize it might be a little much. I don't know. I see why I got an eighty-three. Yeah, 
Is it like one of those things where you take it, you're like, oh, that's interesting, and you keep trying, and you're like, Ugh, you know what? Like, I'm I'm okay for now. Like, I'm okay not having this for a little bit. Yeah, it's good. I just wouldn't want to drink a six pack of it, or like I wouldn't want to have another one right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be fine to like mix this with something, you know, a little bit more just kind of tame, but it's a little much. Back to work. I got just a couple more questions. The number one causative factor of duodenal and gastric ulcers is. The number one causative factor of duodenal and gastric ulcers. That's kind of a weird buzzword, but it's H. pylori. H. pylori. Perfect. I thought I might throw you off since we already talked about it, but that's beautiful. That's how you take tests. You don't. You leave the past behind. You focus on the present. Um, yep. Epigastric tenderness, nausea, maybe even a little bit of blood in the vomit. Start thinking about uh, ulcers. You know, ulcers can cause either bleeding or, worst case scenario, in my opinion, perforation. If they do have a perforated kind of bowel maybe what tests or what imaging would you want to get or what imaging is classically asked for on the step two exam um well it's not just your opinion i think perforation is kind of the worst outcome anybody will agree to that but you want to get what's called a kub specifically an upright kub and the kub stands for kidneys ureters bladders but it's not what you're looking at you're looking for free air under the diaphragm now let's say along those same lines someone has these ulcers and you treat them and they go away and just a couple months later, they come back and they're like, I have the same exact symptoms. And you check them, they have another ulcer. What's the next thing that you want to test them for? Uh, recurrent ulcers. In recurrent ulcers, I don't know that this would be my next test, but I would be a little bit worried about like Solinger Ellison syndrome or something. Beautiful. Yep. And I think maybe it's not your next test, or maybe realistically it's not popping up on anyone's radar, but on the step two exam and a small passage of someone coming back for recurrent ulcers, I think ZE syndrome or Zollinger Ellison mm-hmm. is incredibly appropriate to look for, look for the gastrin. Right. That might be what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, in, in 20% of cases, Zollinger Ellison syndrome is actually associated with a endocrine kind of overlap disorder, or uh, I guess I'm trying to say this without giving it away, a genetic disorder. Right. Um, so for our listeners who listen to our podcast on endocrine should be kind of a giveaway because we, we really uh beat the dead horse here but i assume he's talking about men one beautiful and do you remember the other name for men one oh, god uh i don't it started with a no i have no idea <laughs> wormers yeah it started i was gonna say it started with a w uh no <laughs> it's probably not that's yeah so uh, exactly full circle to the endocrine course where uh, this is a Zollinger Ellison syndrome, likely a tumor secreting gastrin. It can be found in the small intestine, but also in the pancreas. And if it was in the pancreas, you want to start thinking about MEN1, where you have tumors of the pituitary, you have parathyroid disease, often hyperplasia, I think, and then mm-hmm. also pancreatic tumors. Yep. And for whatever reason, this shows up time and again. Act, they actually kind of want you to know what the different gastrin levels mean. So a gastrin level over a 1,000 is textbook Zollinger Ellison syndrome. You're done, you know what it is. Less than a thousand, but over 150 is kind of this uh, intermediary area where it's um, could be a gastronoma, could not be Zollinger Ellison syndrome. Um, and so what you actually do is a, I believe it's a secretin stim test. Um, and then if it rises as opposed to falling like it normally should, then, then that's diagnostic of Zollinger Ellison syndrome. And then a gas level yep. under under 150 is just normal. I forgot about that. Very high yield. And kind of talking about, you know, Zollinger, Ellison syndrome a bit more, 
what would make you, in terms of like pulsar location, what would make you think more about Zollinger Ellis and versus H priority? More gastric ulcers. So. Or, no, 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 no. <laughs> scratch that, scratch that. I remember now. So, H. pylori, classically duodenal, A, B, some gastric. But actually, Z, E has like no boundaries in the small bowel. Z, E can go past the duodenal. Right, exactly. So, the, the ulcer issue. Yeah. So, the ulcer issue with Zollingelis syndrome is that gastrin really ramps up your parietal cells to make more hydrochloric acid. And it uh, overwhelms kind of the buffering potential of your, you know, pancreatic enzymes. And so you, you get acid further down your small intestine than you normally would. And that's what leads to ulcer development really anywhere from the duodenum, the jejunum, even all the way to the ileum. And so if you, you see like jejunal or ileal ulcers, that's, that's not H. pylori, it's, it's uh, zollingalism. All right, that's it for the questions. Tell me, Bobby, how's your drink? Uh, it's not the worst thing I've ever drank. I would, I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Okay. What did you give the drink last week? Do you remember? you got to keep track of these. That's a good point. We need, like, a... Somebody needs to make a website for us and, like, keep a tally. Um, indexed. Yeah. It needs, indexed. it needs to be indexed by episode. There's, like, timestamps and stuff. Like, somebody get on that. Um, you know, in high, now that you mentioned it, I probably... This is probably a 5. I think I was... I've been more harsh in the past. And so it being consistent with that, my previous rating scale is probably like a five out of 10. It's like, it's okay. Yeah. It's I think the worst. fact that you maybe wouldn't even drink it again speaks to a lower score. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. I need to be consistent. Cause like seven out of 10 would be like, oh, I'll drink that. Again. I, that to me seems like I'll drink this again. Yeah. No problem. I think, I guess if I think about it in terms of like a dating scale, like I would date a seven out of 10, but like, I probably Jesus. would not want to date a five out of 10. I mean, I would do it like begrudgingly, but it wouldn't be my first choice. And that's kind of how I would describe this beer. Anyway, you, how, what do you think about your beer? I really liked it. Nine out of ten. I understand why Beer Advocate has it so highly acclaimed. We right. definitely drink this again. It's not super strong. It sounds scary with the double IPA label, but um, really, it's very smooth. It has a nice little fruity aftertaste. Would recommend it. It's St. Archer's Mosaic IPA. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Like you said, whenever I hear double IPA, I'm like, oh God, it's going to be one of those nights, but it's nice to hear it's a little bit uh, lighter. All right, guys. Well, that's it for today. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, insight, email us at iatrogenicproductions at gmail.com. Until next time, have a fantastic week and a nice weekend. Take care. See ya. Just to clarify, do we actually have that email address? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> I do. Okay. No, I just I just want to make sure people aren't just sending their uh, concerns into the void. I mean, I often <laughs> scream into the void, but you never know. Sometimes it screams back. So. It's probably Nicholas Cage. Yay! <laughs>